turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And there's a few things that you need to know while you're making your way to Mark chapter 4 this morning. And the first is this. This is going to be a rather predictable sermon. I'm a missionary. I'm back here on furlough. And I'm going to preach to you on evangelism. And this is the point at which you say, shocker, the missionary comes. He's going to talk about evangelism. Yes, it's very predictable. Um, So whatever that means for you, this is going to be a sermon on evangelism. The other thing that you need to know as you're making your way to Mark chapter 4 is that what you're about to hear is three sermons in one. And I know what you're thinking. That is not what you want to hear at the beginning of a sermon. A preacher that tells you we're about to hear three sermons in one, that sounds long. It won't be long. But I tell you that because what we're going to do is study each section in Mark 4, beginning in verse number 21. This was three sermons that now has transformed and morphed into to one. And I mention that also because we're going to read each section as we go. Um, if you're like me, you're hearing a sermon and you're sort of wondering, is this guy ever going to read the text? We will read the text one section at a time. So you should have your Bible open to Mark chapter 4. And we want to get down to verse number 21. But if we're going to make it to verse number 21, we have to say something about the context. At the beginning of Mark 4, there's a parable that we've all heard before. The parable of the soils. If you look down at verse 3, you'll see that it begins this way. Behold, the sower went out to sow. In this parable, there's four soils, which represent four types of hearers who respond to the word in four different ways. And in fact, verse 14 helps us understand that the seed is the word. Now, in this parable, all four hear the word, and yet only the fourth soil, that is the good soil, we're talking about those who have hearts that have been softened by God's grace, truly embrace the word that they hear. All hear, and one embraces. If you've accepted the word, if you're sitting here this morning, and at a certain point in your life, you left behind your rebellion, you've submitted to King Jesus, you've embraced his gospel, you are that good soil. You've been that good soil. By God's grace, you're the good soil. But we have to say something about the difference between those first three soils, which hear and don't embrace, and that fourth soil, which hears And it's different because the difference between the first three and that last fourth soil is not superficial. In fact, it's a question of fruit bearing, of fruitfulness. While in verse number 19, we read that the growth in the third thorny soil is unfruitful. Back up in verse seven, we find out that it yielded no crop. When we read at the end of that section, verse 20 of the fourth soil we find that it bears fruit. That that is to say, it yields a harvest. Yes, there's varying degrees. And we see that in verse 20. And and yet, every good soil actually bears that fruit. So we can say that if you are that good fruit, if you've received, excuse me, that good soil, you've received the word, you must bear fruit. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, What is the nature of the fruit born by the good soil? And this is the question that we want to answer this morning. And and by the way, 
I'm assuming that you want to bear fruit. I'm, I'm assuming that your presence here this morning means that you long for your life to be useful in the hands of your master. And then on the other side, I, I'm assuming that, that you hate, you disdain the idea of Christ saving you, of giving you new life that you then squander on yourself. I'm assuming you want to bear fruit. But, but if we want to bear this fruit, we have to understand the sort of fruit about which he's speaking. And we could say that here, Jesus is talking about kingdom fruit. So, so the parable of the soils, that's this one that we've just reviewed, and all the rest of the parables that we'll study this morning describe life in the kingdom of God in the present age. You can look down, for example, verse 26, verse 30, talk about the kingdom of God. And this is, in fact, why before Jesus explains the parable of the soils to the 12, to his disciples, he says in verse 11, speaking to them, to you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom. And bear with me for a minute, but the mystery of the kingdom is that in the same way that there are two comings of Christ, the kingdom of God unfolds in two phases. Listen to how Mark summarizes Jesus' preaching of the gospel of God. This is a very, um, at the very beginning of his gospel, we read, this is a summary of Jesus' message, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the gospel. In the future, men will be constrained to bow the knee before the king and to acknowledge the glory of his kingdom. But in the present, we might say that Christ reigns in the hearts of those who accept his word. The kingdom of God is Christ's dominion over those whom he has saved. You can just listen, but, but Paul talks about this in Colossians 1.13. He says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Therefore, all that to say that the kingdom fruit that we must bear has to do with the present phase of the kingdom. In this phase, the rule of King, of King Jesus spreads by the preaching of his gospel. This is why in the gospel of Matthew, we can read phrases like the word of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. And if we wanted to sort of summarize what we're getting at here, we might say that the good soil about which we read in verse 20 becomes the sower. Every good soil in turn becomes the sower. Every good soil that accepts the word of the kingdom becomes a sower of that same word. The fruit that we must bear has to do with our faithfulness to share that which we've heard. We receive to give. To follow Christ always means longing that other people would do the same. Jesus himself is the master disciple maker. And the disciples that Jesus makes are always those who long to make other disciples. They bear fruit. You remember what Jesus tells his first disciples, Mark 1.17, he says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And, and sometimes when we reflect on that verse, we, we, we imagine that it's worded this way. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men as if it was a sort of instantaneous change that transpires from one instant to the next. But he doesn't say that. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. 
And that word become is often forgotten, but, but, but nevertheless essential because it indicates a process. As we follow Christ, Jesus himself makes us become that which we aren't in and of ourselves. Now, if you've read this gospel recently, you'll remember that it's strewn with examples of the spiritual thick-headedness and the faithless hard-heartedness of the disciples. Sometimes as you read, you, you can't help but wonder, can they not get this right? I mean, they're there with Jesus. But, but in contrast to, to, to their confusion, one finds the, the careful, patient, kind-hearted discipleship of Jesus. He, he lovingly molds a band of uneducated fishermen into fishers of men. He takes these guys that, that, that can't seem to do anything but focus on themselves. We're hungry. We're not happy with what's happening. And he begins to shape them into those who are burdened for the souls of others. Those who want to see other people submit to the king just the way that they have. And, and friends, if we're, if we're likewise followers of Christ, he's doing the very same thing in our hearts. He's making us become that which we could never be apart from his help. He's making us into fishers of men. He's making us into those who bear kingdom fruit. And you know, one of the ways he does this is by giving us truths to preach to our heart about the kingdom. All the other parables in Mark chapter 4 unpack just what it means to bear kingdom fruit. We want to know, what does this look like to be a sower, to take the word we've heard and respond rightly? That's what Jesus talks about in these next three parables. So I want to show you this morning three kingdom truths that will fertilize your heart to bear kingdom fruit. Three kingdom truths that will fertilize your heart to bear kingdom fruit. Number one, the word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. The word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. Let's read in verse number 21. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed. Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even that, even what he has shall be taken away from him. The word you hear is not for your ears only. That the message that you've heard must be spoken so that others might hear. The word that fills your heart each week as you come here, each week as you study God's word, must overflow into the lives of others. It must shape your relationships with them. It must give you a burden for their souls. If we're to bear kingdom fruit, we must pass on what we've received to others. So the emphasis in the parable of the soils was on how we hear the word. Here we might say that the emphasis is on what we do with what we hear. You see this towards the end of verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24, take care what you listen to or be careful how you listen. And in this 
section, there's two strands of the argument. The first strand is this. Just as a lamp is made for shining, revelation is given for sharing. Just as a lamp is made for shining, revelation is given for sharing. That's the first strand, verses 21 through 23. The second strand is found in those last two verses, verse 24 and 25. Every hearer of the word has a responsibility based on what he has heard. Every hearer has a responsibility that's based on what he has heard. Let's unpack these two strands. Look at verse 21. A lamp is for shining, it's rather obvious, and therefore it isn't fit to be concealed under a basket or under a bed. Its proper place, its obvious place, is the lampstand because it has a purpose and its purpose is to give light. And in fact, we see this emphasis in verses 21 and 22. You might see it in your Bibles, verse 21 and 22, three times there's that to be, to be, to be. Then verse 22, the same thing, that it would, all of which communicate this idea of a lamp's purpose. So a lamp's purpose, that is what it's for, what it's made for, the end for which it should be used, means that to conceal or cover it, it's nonsensical, it's absurd. It's true that when Jesus was on the earth, parables were meant to conceal revelation from a hardened people. We see that verse 11 and 12, but... Here, Jesus is reminding us that the ultimate purpose of revelation, it's just that, to reveal, to make manifest, to give light. The light of the word of the kingdom must shine forth like a lamp on a lampstand. And in fact, in the the parallel passage in the gospel of Luke, Luke says, we we have to put that lamp on the lampstand so that those who come in might see the light. Now, the rest of the section, I told you that there were two strands, highlights the nature of our responsibility. And if you're looking at verse 24, we learn that the way that we respond to the word, that is, by what measure we measure what we hear, is connected to what we will receive. That is, how it will be measured to us. And what Jesus is getting at here is that when we are faithful with what we hear, God graciously gives us more opportunities to hear the word. How you hear matters. When you hear well, God graciously gives more opportunities to hear his word. There's a warning and a promise in verse 25. The the, the promise is that glorious reality to which we just referred. If you hear well... God continually gives you opportunities to hear it. And yet, it's a warning because it reminds us that our response to the word always determines our relationship to the kingdom. Let's put this section together. So we said there was two strands. We have a responsibility, and then there's a purpose. So the word has a purpose, which is to reveal. We have a responsibility to what we hear. And if we put these together we could say that it is our responsibility to be faithful to the purpose of revelation. In other words, we listen well when we listen in order to tell others. You may have heard of the Gnostic Gospels. 
It's a little bit outdated at this point, but around the time of the Da Vinci Code, there was much talk about these Gnostic Gospels. Maybe you've heard the phrase apocryphal Gospels. These are false Gospels, by the way, written a good while after the biblical Gospels. We have, for example, the Gospel of Judas. And in this false Gospel, Judas is not only the betrayer, but Judas is the hero. All the other disciples just don't get it. They don't have what it takes to access this secret knowledge. But Judas is the one who is worthy to have special knowledge about Jesus Christ. And this is sort of how the Gnostic Gospels work. Salvation is to possess a secret knowledge, a gnosis. And this special knowledge is reserved for those who show themselves worthy. The select few, the initiated, the elite. In the Gnostic Gospels, this knowledge is to be concealed and not shared. Friends, we must never be Gnostic in our understanding of the message of the kingdom. We receive, you receive to give. And we we dare not treat the revelation of God as if it was our personal property to protect from other people. So if you are in Christ this morning... At a point in your life, your heart is dead. There is no spiritual heartbeat. And the Lord says, live and you live. You have life in Christ. And if you have that life in Christ, you have to long that the Lord would do the same in the lives and the hearts of others. And maybe at this point you're thinking, well, it's kind of easy for this guy to say. I mean, this guy's a missionary. Certainly for him, it comes easy always. If that is a thought in your mind, it would be totally wrong. My heart is the same as yours. I see my neighbor walking towards our apartment and sometimes my heart wants to do anything but talk with him. Sometimes my heart says, I have to hurry and get this door open and there's another door and get to the elevator so that I don't have to ride up with that guy. Sometimes when you hear preaching on evangelism, you feel bad. Man, feel bad. But but conviction is more than feeling bad because you can feel bad and feel sorry for yourself and do nothing. Conviction has to do with recognition of responsibility. So so, so my heart for, for you, for me this morning is that we feel the weight of our responsibility. And wanting to do that in light of this first section, here are some questions we can ask ourselves. How can we hoard the riches of the gospel while our neighbors know not the king has come? You're a privileged people. I've heard Shane preach and it is encouraging and careful and edifying. You sit under his preaching week in and week out, verse by verse, careful exposition, soul-stirring explanation. But will you feast on verse-by-verse exposition without ever opening your heart to those who are starving? To those who don't even know the, 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 the very beginning of a taste of what true spiritual nourishment is. Can we shut the truth and the light up in our homes and draw the curtains so that no one can see in? Can we really allow ourselves only to be surrounded with other Christians, only to be around other people who think like us and talk like us and live like us? 
can, can we do that when there's a whole world of people made in God's image and they don't even understand who the Savior is? The kingdom of God has been brought near in Christ and in Christ we're brought near to God. But this nearness to God likewise brings us near to others. It gives us a burden for them. So we have to fight against a sort of depersonalized existence. We can't allow ourselves to be barred from human interaction by burying ourselves in those little glowing screens that we carry about in our pockets. We must risk our comfort, that is, expose ourselves to discomfort for the sake of the gospel because the gospel is that valuable. And, and if you say, well, th- th- this seems... This seems like almost too much. Jesus himself is the perfect example. Jesus is the ultimate sower. You remember towards the beginning of Mark, we meet his arch rivals, the scribes and the Pharisees. So, so, so they're blinded by the emptiness of their religious formalism. They can't get past their idea about what it means to be clean and unclean and holy and all the rest. And they cannot seem to understand why Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. They just can't get it. And, and in fact, in, in the gospel of Luke, Jesus's friendship with sinners is a perpetual problem. For example, Luke 15, 2 They'll say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. We we, we could ask ourselves, could others say the same about us? Could others watch our lives and say, I don't understand how that person that serves Jesus Christ would spend time with those people who do not? Or could they only say, well, that person there, yeah, he attends church and he only ever talks to people who are just like him. That person is shielded from those who don't know Christ and only speaks with other Christians. Friends, how are you intertwining your life with your unbelieving friends and family so that you might speak to them of Christ? How are you deliberately working to tell them about what you have heard? It's, it's rather simple. The sower can't sow seed if he doesn't go out into the field. You can't bring truth to bear on the hearts of those whom you don't know. The word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. I want to show you a second kingdom truth that will fertilize your heart to bear kingdom fruit. The growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. The growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. Look at verse 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade and the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The growth of the kingdom is not ultimately dependent on our efforts 
or on our ingenuity. Yet, yes, it's true, the Lord is pleased to use us as the imperfect channels through which his gospel shines, but we always have to remember that he likewise works in spite of our limitations and in spite of our weakness. But but the glorious truth of this section is that our frailty can't put the brakes on the expansion of the kingdom because its progress isn't contingent upon our power or on our capacity. We're never the direct cause of spiritual growth. Kingdom fruit is always supernatural. Look at verse 26. We, We encounter here a rather indistinct character. He's not necessarily a farmer or not specifically so, but simply a man. And the link between this parable and the parable of the soils is unmistakable. The seed he sows is the word and the soil represents the hearts of those who hear. In verse 26, we find him, he's flinging his seed upon the soil. And after doing that, in verse 27, he he goes about his normal routine. He goes to sleep, wakes up the next day, and there's a cyclical fashion to it all. It's all very ordinary and normal. But while he's doing this normal routine, while he's sleeping, meanwhile, out in the field, something is happening. He's, he's slumbering, his eyes are closed, he's dreaming, he does not even know what's happening, but while he sleeps, the seed grows. And so Jesus wants us to get this unmistakable truth that, that, that his efforts cannot account for the growth of the seed, and he himself cannot be the direct source of the fruit. And if you look at verse 27, he doesn't even have the wherewithal to explain how it happens. How he himself does not know. So so the farmer is ignorant of the natural mechanisms that cause the seed to sprout. He can't really make the seed do anything. He can try with all his might. He can sing to it. He can try to force its hand. And yet, he's powerless. He can't guarantee a good harvest. The growth of the kingdom is mysterious. The seed we scatter often takes root when we least expect it. We look and we see those who seem just ready to soften to the gospel and they harden. And then at times that person who seems utterly lost and almost hopeless softens. There's those who come to Christ after after hearing the gospel message one time for five minutes. And there's others who are converted after hearing the word weekly for 50 years. And, and I hope as, as, you, as you're hearing this and as, as the Lord is working in your heart, there are faces of unsaved friends and unsaved family members that are coming into your mind. And, and if you're like me, at times your heart is prone to think, I've tried, I've shared the gospel, I've tried to model faithful Christian living try to take every opportunity, but it doesn't seem like anything's happening. It seems like my efforts are in vain. It seems like this person will never soften, will never give me the time of day. Look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. Because what you have to understand is that what you see with your eyes is only a meager fraction of what the Lord is doing. What you're able to comprehend and to perceive is only a mere portion of the power that operates through the word. 
The word's power to build the kingdom is not dependent upon our ability to understand what or how it's happening. When we begin to evaluate the progress of the gospel only based upon what we perceive, that, that, that is with our human senses, our human perspective, when I begin to look at what the Lord is doing as if it were limited by my limitations, doubts begin to creep in. And, I be, and we begin to question the potency or the strength of the word of Christ. And you know what? This is precisely what happens later in chapter four. You can start looking at verse number 38. You'll remember this scene, Jesus having faithfully preached the word, just finishes the sermon that we're now studying, sleeps soundly in the boat. He's just like the man in the parable, the man who sows then sleeps. Jesus preached, he sowed, and we find him sleeping in the boat. But the disciples are not like Jesus because the disciples are gripped by what they see and they're forgetful of who they're with. And since they're forgetful of who they're with and they base what's happening only on their circumstances, that is what they see, they call Christ's character into question. Look at verse 38. We find Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And the same thing happens in our hearts. We begin to assess what the Lord is doing based only upon what we can see, forgetful of who Christ is and the power of his word. And we too begin to doubt. We must not let our hearts forget the power of the word of Christ Every time a soul is exposed to even one portion of this word, there's great hope of transformation. Change can happen. And change can happen because the power to transform is found in the seed itself. This is exactly what we see in verse 28. The soil produces crops by itself. And the phrase by itself translates the word automatas, where we get words like automatic. Find it Acts 12.10, where it's used of a door that opened by itself. Describes an action accomplished without outside intervention. The, the word of God, insofar as it contains a creative force, can cause the kingdom to grow by itself. Its, its efficacy, its ability is not contingent upon us. It's inherently powerful to create life in dead hearts. And if you look at verse 28, we find that the power source behind every part of the growth is ever the same. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. And then in verse 29, we see that there will be no harvest until God wants there to be. There will be a harvest, yes, but it will be exactly the harvest that God wants. We're simply the privileged instruments that God uses. He unleashes the power of his word through our meager efforts. Our job is to be faithful to explain what God has said because every addition to the word or every subtraction from the word can only take away from its power. This is the glorious liberty of life in the kingdom. We throw ourselves into the spread of the gospel. 
knowing that that spread does not depend upon us. So if the growth of the kingdom were contingent upon our gifting, if it were dependent upon our knowing exactly what to say or when to say it, then our excuses for, for, for of, of fear or, or an inactivity might be justified. Th- that is to say, if it were dependent upon me, if I had to feel the weight on my shoulders of causing this change, of, of making this person believe in Christ, if that was my job, then maybe... My excuse of saying, that's too much, I can't do it. Maybe it would be justified. But that's not the case. The word of, the God, the word of God can save even if we stutter, stumble, stammer to explain the gospel. It can still save. The word of God is able to overcome our nervousness. The word of God is able to overcome our embarrassment. The word of God is able to overcome our lack of sophistication. It can overcome our nervousness, our awkwardness. Friends, you have to ever keep your eyes peeled for unbelievers to befriend. And and once you've befriended these unbelievers, you need to beseech the Lord of the harvest for wisdom to know how best to lovingly weave the truth of his word into your conversations with these unbelieving friends that you've befriended. Yes, If we're ever going to be a light in their lives, our lives need to be distinct from theirs. We can't condone their sin. We can't embrace a lifestyle that doesn't please Christ. And yet, we must share life with them. Bear their burdens. Love them as Christ has loved you. Do everything in your power to sow seed in every heart possible. Here's the formula. Sow, sleep, and see what the Lord does. So, sleep and see what the Lord does. The growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. There's a last and a third kingdom truth that will fertilize your heart to bear kingdom fruit. Number three, the best of the kingdom is yet to come. The best of the kingdom is yet to come. Let's read verse 30. To 32. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Presently, the kingdom of God is characterized by smallness, humility, and ordinary, everyday sinners saved by grace. The the ultimate glory of the kingdom is veiled. Many haven't heard that the king has come. And many of those who have heard about the king scoff at his kingdom. But there's a day coming when the king will return And at that point, his glory will be seen by all as he establishes his reign. The best of the kingdom is yet to come. Now, as I mentioned when I introduced our text, the kingdom of God unfolds in two phases. In the present age, Christ reigns in the hearts of his people by the spirit as they submit to his word. In the age to come, men, all men will bow before the king and see the magnificence of his kingdom. We we might say that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at Christ's first coming 
and that it will be consummated when he returns again in glory. While the previous parable in verse 26 to 29 emphasized the process of growth, one soul at a time, the parable of the mustard seed emphasizes the contrast between the beginning and the end, the contrast between the first phase and the second phase. And although there's an organic link between the first phase and the second phase of the kingdom, the end is surprising. It's even shocking in light of the beginning. Verse 31 A mustard seed is a fitting illustration for the initial phase of the kingdom because it's minuscule. It has a diameter of one or or two millimeters. There's a smallness. There's a simplicity about the way that Jesus works in the present age. Jesus wants to emphasize the minuteness of the seed. It was then considered the smallest seed as it was tinier than all the other seeds then known. The point is, is, is rather straightforward. The Lord doesn't work through political clout or earthly power or clever programs. When he wants to build his kingdom, he doesn't have need of any of those things. All of the things which to us seem to be outwardly impressive, he does not have need of. So in this age, it is the folly of the preached word that saves and sanctifies And our Lord is pleased to build his kingdom to work through what seems to be insignificant by worldly standards. And what's the origin of this humility of the present age of the kingdom? Our our Savior's life. The humility that characterizes our kingdom work finds its origin in our Lord's humility, in our Lord's earthly ministry. Think about it. God the Son has dwelt always before the world was with the Father, with God the Father, and God the Spirit, and perfect love, and perfect glory, and perfect harmony, perfectly blessed, perfectly joyous, lacking in nothing. And then he becomes man at a certain point in history. The God who has always existed takes on flesh, and now God the Son is fully God and fully man. And when he comes to the earth, he does not arrive outwardly so as a king. He does not say, you must bow the knee before me. Quite the opposite. He's born in a manger. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. He's an unknown carpenter from the backwater town of Nazareth. He ate with sinners. His companions were commoners. His 12 disciples were not of noble blood And even in the end, these that were closest to him abandoned him. Jesus gives his life by dying. Jesus heals by suffering. You know this verse well, Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served. So he does not come to be served the way that a king might or a ruler or someone important might. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You've probably heard of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. They're posted at the end of October 1517. But just a few months later, Luther presented another set of lesser-known theses at the dispute of Heidelberg, April 1518. And it was there that he introduced a concept which is essential for understanding Luther's thought. 
he talked about the distinction between the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. So for Luther, the theologian of glory refuses to recognize or to acknowledge his own tendency to trust himself. The theologian of glory thinks that God acts in this world just like he might. He imagines that God builds his kingdom in human fashion. He thinks that God shows his greatness and his grandeur just like any other human monarch might. The theologian of the cross, on the other hand, knows that Christ's cross work is the pinnacle of God's working in this world. And so, the theologian of the cross understands that he has to understand everything through that lens, through the lens of the cross. We might call it a cross-shaped lens. One historian helps us to apply Luther's concept of the theologian of the cross this way. He says, quote, So when a Christian talks about divine power, or even about church or Christian power, it is to be conceived of in terms of the cross, power hidden in the form of weakness. You've read the parables. In this age, the kingdom of God is not like an army that marches forward, destroying all in its path. It's like a sower who sows seed. In this age, the kingdom of God expands through the efforts of imperfect, weak, saved sinners. In this age, there's suffering. In this age, there's persecution. In this age, there's cross-bearing. So don't be confused about how God is working now. Glory and grandeur and greatness, those are yet to come. Don't be fooled into thinking he uses or has need of that which is outwardly impressive or that he should build his kingdom as you might. I have great news for you this morning. If if you consider yourself an average, run-of-the-mill believer who loves Jesus, here's the good news. You are exactly the type of person that Jesus uses to build his kingdom. You are the instrument. Look nowhere else. You are what he uses. He uses our ordinariness. He uses our so-called normal life of submission to his word to bring about change in the lives of other people. It works this way in this age. He uses our weakness. He uses our imperfect, our imperfect devotion to Jesus Christ to draw others to Jesus Christ as we proclaim his word. And when he uses our weakness to reach other weak human beings, he gets all the glory. There'll be no diminishing the power due the great worker. But it won't ever and always be this way. Look at verse 32. In verse 32, we see that the smallness of the seed gives way to a robust tree that offers birds a refuge. And again here, the the end is shockingly unexpected in light of the beginning. The seeming tininess of the beginning is swallowed up by the splendor of the culmination. We, We know from Mark 8 that the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then, 
When Christ returns to reign on the earth, the kingdom of God will be fully and finally manifested. Oh, and don't miss, if you're looking down at verse 32, the Old Testament reference. There's not time to unpack all this, but but Jesus wants us to see a link between the birds who find their nests in the branches of the tree and, and these Old Testament references to the nations. So the birds represent nations. And he has passages in mind like Daniel 4.12, or, or even better, Ezekiel 17.23, Ezekiel 31.6. And when we sort of put all these passages together, we see just that, that these birds are nations. So, so the kingdom of God, which seems small by worldly standards, it seems insignificant and unimpressive. God is using people who are imperfect, awaiting the return of the king. In the end, it will be made up of some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Then, in the end, the nations will walk by the light of the Lamb. And the nations will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem forever and ever. And in the end, Christ will reign and there will be only Christ. There will be no scoffers or naysayers. And the end has to influence the present. So the the, the then has to influence the now. So if this is where the kingdom is headed, if that's where it's all going to end up, if this is the destiny of all that is, that is Christ's reign, we have to begin now to work for the then. And maybe it would work like this. I, I long to pour myself into whoever will listen so that then there will be another voice added to the throngs that will praise Christ forever knowing that in the end Christ wins and he then will have his glory changes my now. The best is yet to come. Now the glory of Jesus Christ is seen in part. His power shines forth through the lives of his imperfect people. But then it will be seen fully and finally in his personal presence. Then our efforts, which now seem to be meager, sometimes they seem to be done in vain, will be seen for what they really were. Then, that is when Christ returns, and only then will the real nature of the fruit yielded by our ministry be seen. Charles Bridges has well said, quote, ministerial success must be viewed as extending beyond present appearances. The seed may lie under the earth till we lie there and then spring up. If we're to bear maximum fruit, we need to fertilize our hearts with kingdom truths. The word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. The growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. And the best of the kingdom is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this text because it cuts and heals at one and the same time. It reminds me of my inadequacy. It reminds us of how much work is yet to be done. 
And yet it gives us the great encouragement to know that even our meager efforts are useful in your hands. Father, I pray for this church, this church that has been in, in so many ways a blessing and an encouragement to me and my family, that, that, that you might fill their hearts with a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ and that idea of Christ reigning, that idea of Christ receiving the glory which is his due might fill their minds and their hearts and that it might overflow into those that are around them who yet don't know you. I pray, Father, that the rich body life, which I've already experienced even in the few minutes that I've been here this morning, would be like a beacon set upon a hill. I pray that those who are around faith community would recognize that what what they're seeing, the people with whom they're interacting are the proof that the gospel works. Life's changed and then people serving one another, that is the fruit of that which you've done in their hearts. And I pray that this body life would overflow into the lives of unbelieving friends and family members and that you might stir up hearts so that you might save, so you might expand the kingdom. And I pray all these things In Jesus' name, amen.